You're listening to the best of The Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or F-O-F. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. My name is Dick Postolo. I'm delighted to be uh, moderating this event today. Um, and by way of introducing the senator, I thought I would just read from the back flap of her wonderful book, Plenty Ladylike, because it's a great, uh, it's a great bio. In 2006, Sarah McCaskill was the first woman from Missouri elected as a United States senator and continues to serve in that position today. She has a BA and a JD from the University of Missouri and worked for the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office before she was elected to her first state legislature position in the Missouri House in 1982. She lives in St. Louis with her husband and blended family of seven children and nine grandchildren. Senator, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Dick. Thanks yes. for doing, thank you for doing this. Thank you for being here. Okay, so uh, we'll jump right in. I thought I would um, start off with um, the very beginning of, of the book you and, and throughout you talk about um, your mom quite a bit. And um, she was the third ward, she won the third ward seat in the Columbia City Council. Uh, you're in high school when she, she has this moment where you're in the audience and, um, and you say, the night she was sworn in was so embarrassing. Um, and then you go on to talk about the kinds of things she did and some of her antics and uh, seemed to inform some of your boldness. Could you just talk about that a little bit and what yeah, some of those things were? You know, at the time, it was incredibly embarrassing. But um, here's what she did. We're sitting in the audience, and this was Columbia, Missouri, which is the School of Journalism. So there's about seven journalists for every city council member um, at this event and lots of photographers because everybody's in school learning how to be a photographer. Mom goes up with a brown paper bag to the front, and this has been historically a good old boys city council, businessmen in town, the Chamber of Commerce. So the fact that mom had gotten elected was a little earth-shattering in Columbia. She comes with this brown paper bag. She opens the brown paper bag. She slowly takes out a picture of her children and puts it at her seat. Then she takes out a vase of flowers, (laughs) and I'm like this. And then she takes out an apron and ties on the apron and then proceeds to sit down to take her place at city council. Now, I was very embarrassed and mortified. All of us were that were part of her family, not my dad, but he was kind of used to it. But we were, we were really embarrassed. But looking back, it was an incredible role modeling moment for me. Because what she was really doing was saying in a powerful visual way, I'm not afraid. I'm different. I'm going to be bold. 
Um, and she did it in a way that was compelling. So while at the time I just said, Mom, please stop, to almost everything she did in public, um, later in life I realized that it was in fact her that gave me the ability to um, kind of be aggressive when maybe others might have shied away from controversy. Um, yeah, the, uh, you, you go on to talk about her making you proud and nervous and that's sort of the same. That yeah, same all to, all, it was a mix of, <laughs> you know, what would she do? At one point at a council meeting, she got off the dais and went into the audience to heckle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, really? Um, she was something else. My mom was something else. So uh, you're, you're uh, moving forward. You're in the Missouri General Assembly, and um, there was a great, dis- great discussion in the book, which was fascinating to me, um, about sexism, um, not just from men, but also from other women. Um, you talked about uh, Winnie Weber and the Kit Bond uh, uh, a moment, and Bob Griffin and his, knee- I mean, almost remarkable knee pads comment. Um, are we... Are we beyond that now? I mean, I know it's only 20, 25, 30 years later, but and if, if, it's not, if we're not beyond that, how much of a problem is it still for both men and, men and women? Well, I, I think it's still a problem. Um, when this book was being printed, I talk about in this book, as you referenced, that the Speaker of the House, when I was a freshman legislator, when I asked him how I could get my bill out of committee, he asked me if I brought my knee pads. Um, I, I was certainly harassed as a young intern back in the 70s. And so it was, it was depressing to me when this book was actually being printed. And I tell all these stories in the book that there was a scandal that broke out in Missouri with a couple of high-powered Missouri legislators getting caught in a sexually propositioning interns. And, um, and one of the things that I do in this book that I hope the readers appreciate is that I... I tell a lot of stuff that you're not supposed to talk about if you yeah. do what I do for a living. And one of the things I admit a lot is that I'm not sure I did things right. And I didn't confront this in a public way when I had this happen to me. Um, I worked around it. I figured out how to strategically work around it. It fueled me. It made me mad that I was being minimalized. But I used that as just energy to show these jerks that I was better at this than they were, and I was going to be better than they are. Um, So imagine how depressing it is that as this book is going to print, the same stuff's going on 40 years later. The difference is these young women confronted it publicly, and both these jerks lost their careers over it. So um, that one of the young women reached out to me and called me and was very kind and said, listen, you know, you've been such a role model and all that. And I said, listen, you're the one. You're the one with courage. I never confronted it publicly. You did. And probably what you've done is a much bigger deterrent to that kind of behavior going forward than anything I have done. So, uh, and I will say there is, it's somewhat better, um, even though that happened in Missouri just in the last six months. I will tell you, there is not a marginalization of women in the United States Senate. Um, now, part of it is they were a lot older, but part of it is that if you get to the United States Senate, you know, our colleagues know that we're all pretty tough cookies. Um, a woman who gets to the United States Senate, you know, you just probably don't want to mess around with her too much because <laughs> she's, she's figured out some stuff. So, um, 
the 20 of us, we love to do this because it drives them crazy. The 20 of us will kind of gather on the floor of the Senate. And when we do that, it scares the men to death because they're like, oh, my Lord, they're all together. They're formidable. What are we going to do? So I will say that I've never felt marginalized or disrespected as a woman in the United States Senate, where I have been certainly felt that way in other jobs I've had. Just to segue directly from that and skip forward a little bit, can you talk about Emily's List a bit and your involvement with that and how that's, how that's helped? Well, I, 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 um, I particularly talk about in the book how frustrating it's been for me. Listen, I think Citizens United is the most corrosive thing that has happened in our democracy in its history. But having said that, I am, one of the reasons I am in the United States Senate is I learned to ask people for money. Um, I was raised that it was impolite to talk about money. So imagine my surprise, I found myself in a career where I was calling perfect strangers and asking them for checks with commas in it. Um, it, it, it is a bizarre deal, raising money for politics. Um, so Emily's List has done something amazing in this country because they have motivated women uh, to give money. And of course, many of you may not know what Emily's List stands for. You think there was an Emily somewhere. But it stands for early money is like yeast. And the idea is that if you can get contributions either earlier in your campaign cycle or earlier in your career, then that is an investment that it's smart for women to make in other women. And it has been a tremendous help to me. In fact, they're having their annual lunch here in San Francisco on Friday, and I'm honored to be the keynote speaker there to thank them all for all the help they've given across the years. Women are really not very good at making political contributions. Um, wealthy women why, are, why are terrible at it. I, I mean, this is my theory. And, you know, somebody here is probably smarter than I am and says, will say I'm wrong, and they may be absolutely correct. But my theory is that women have a tendency to see money as security. I think men have a tendency to see money as power. Right. So if it's security, you're thinking, well, how do I, writing a $100 check to a city council candidate, how does that get me anything? Um, and on the other hand, if you're a man in business and you want to be able to call somebody on the city council to get information, or you think this is somebody who, you know, writing a hundred bucks, you don't think about it. So women, I, I have a thing I do with women and it's really fun because I get these checks with this on the memo line. I do this little shtick with women. There's a blouse right. that you saw somewhere in the closet. and you, it was on sale and it was, you thought I got to have it. It's on sale. It's great. You didn't take time to it on. You got it home and it gapped right here. I don't know what they do about designing blouses. I mean, you can be like a stick and they still gap, but it, it, so it gaps or it's the wrong color. It didn't fit right. It pulled, and it sat in your closet for years and you never, and finally you put it in a garage sale or you gave it away. Write a check for the amount of that blouse. Maybe it's 1999. Maybe it's 199. Write a check for the amount of that blouse to any candidate you believe in. And I said, if you write it to me, be sure and put blouse on the memo line. And to this day, I get checks with blouse on the memo line, which is great fun for me. <laughs> um, I love that story in, in the book. Um, I want to talk about campaigns a little bit. Um, um, in your, you know, at the, in the very beginning and the very end of the book, um, talk about in 1982 when you're going door to door and you get the door slammed in your face. Um, um, and you even mentioned at the very end of the book, uh, you know, you sort of inspire people to find your own slammed door that's going to push you forward to achieve. Um, 
got the re-election to the House for the third time, then the governor's race in 2004, and then these Senate campaigns, and there are all these ups and downs. Just can you talk about what that's like to go through? I think that people, I'll tell you, the reason I ask is I think people have a, an idea that, you know, um, people who are successful in politics kind of have this steady march from this office to the next one, to the next one higher up, to the Senate, to, and so forth. Um, but in the book, it's very clear it's filled with ups and downs. And you even mention um, running against Addie Winslow uh, uh, for, the, uh, for the House for the third time and stand, having a nightmare that you're standing at your desk in the Missouri House and your friend comes up to you and says, what are you doing here? You lost. Right. Um, and so talk about what that's like. I mean, even going from the 2004 uh, governor's campaign to... Uh, then there you are on stage at the, uh, in a primetime slot at the Democratic National Convention in 2008, um, um, endorsing uh, Obama. What's that, what are those highs and lows like? And I think they're, it's very, very different than probably what most, most other people go through on a year-to-year basis with their own careers. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier episode of the Michelle Miao Show. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. It's interesting because I'm not, I think it is more uh, roller coaster like in politics. And part of that is you're putting yourself out for public acceptance or rejection. Um, you may not get that promotion at work, or you may be disappointed right. that you don't get that job. But it's generally not blared across right. the front page of the paper. Right. And you know, when somebody in your family screws up, it's painful, but it, generally you don't have TV cameras parked out in your front yard, like I have had in my career when I was the elected DA in Kansas City and my then-husband got caught smoking pot on a gambling boat. Not a good moment. Um, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, well, we, we can, can get to that. Um, but I, th- there, is this, there is this up and down, and... Um, but that's kind of where the resiliency comes from. I had, from the time I was about 12 years old, made up my mind I was going to be the first woman governor of Missouri. And I ran against an incumbent governor of my own party in 2004. Did the unheard of, not only taking on my own party, but the governor. And nobody had ever done that successfully in Missouri. And Frank, it's only been done a handful of times in the country. And I beat him in the primary. And then I went on to lose narrowly in November. So I laid on the couch for about three months and baked probably a hundred dozen chocolate chip cookies <laughs> and consumed most of those myself. Uh, I was very depressed, um, and uh, my husband, uh, my second husband, who I'm grateful to have as my life partner now and forever, uh, he he's the one who kind of grabbed me and said, "Get up! You got to get back at this." And then. Schumer and Harry Reid started calling, trying to talk me into running against an incumbent U.S. senator. And I'm going, wait a minute, let me see if I get this straight. I just couldn't win this 
race for an open seat as governor, and you think I can take on in a non-presidential cycle in Missouri a Republican incumbent senator and win. And, but they talked me into it, and I ran and won. And I hope this book shows young women and young men how that thing that people who love you say, when one door shuts, another door opens, blah, 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 blah. Um, I never paid much attention to it, as it turned out. That was really true for me. I wouldn't have ever won the Senate race had I not failed at the governor's race. But it is, you've got to get a really tough skin if you're in politics. I mean, I opened up my Twitter account. Thanks, by the way, yeah. for this. Um, the we the trolling that goes on yeah. on my Twitter feed, I think, frankly, is probably, you know, they, they read mean tweets. I mean, every day I could do a whole show. You know, your face is like a diaper, you old hag. Uh, you're too ugly for me to look at. You corrupt piece of... I mean, it is amazing how mean people are. Um, and But you just have to kind of realize you can't make everybody happy if you get anything done. Um, yeah, my, my mentions on Twitter have similar, uh, similar, similar we should, commentary. We should, with some, should with do some a drawdown on mean tweets, yeah. Dick. Okay, it's a good idea. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, there are a bunch of really great questions here. So I'm going to start going to some of the sure. uh, questions from the audience. Um, and then I'll hop back and forth between these and mine. Um, so uh, what do you think of the current success of some of the um, outsider politics folks like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders? Is this a new era of, of politics in America? It really isn't. If you look at history, there has always been um, this wonderful, eternal optimist in America that if we just get somebody who's more of an outsider, we can change things overnight. Um, but our founding fathers created a system of governance that is very interdependent. Um, we, you know, a new president can't get much done without Congress that is willing to work with them, and vice versa. Um, and just because somebody's from the outside doesn't mean that they have any of the skill sets that are needed to navigate um, that government that is in its essence, a check and balance form of government. Um, that's, you know, and the American people in their wisdom sent one party to the presidency and another party to Congress, and then everybody wants to complain that we don't get anything done. Well, duh. I mean, we're not going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Mitch McConnell and John Boehner, I don't agree with much that they think is important in this country. And by the way, neither does the president. So how can we make things happen? How can we really move things forward? And so in that moment of frustration over a divided government, I think a lot of people just think, well, let's just take the status quo and shake it real hard. And then somehow, magically, everybody will get along and it'll be unicorns and rainbows and government will work well and every, you know, there'll be income e equality and, and uh, the, you know, or if, according to Donald Trump, we will have a different kind of country because we will no longer respect immigrants in this country or women or, well, it's a long list with Donald, isn't it? <laughs> I don't have time for all the things that Donald doesn't respect. So um, I respect the sentiment of the voters that are going there, um, but because I get it, I understand it. But I just want to remind everybody here, and you really need to think about this. I'm from a swing state. I tease Barbara and Diane when they talk to me about what I'm going to vote for, I go, really? Come with me to Shannon County. You know, I mean, they think conservative. I mean, their most conservative county is like, you know, lefty, lefty for Missouri. So it, it is, um, nobody calls me and asks me to compromise. 
No one ever writes and says compromise. Now, a whole bunch of people in America and in my state say, why don't you get anything done? But the, all the noise in the system is being generated by rigid ideology, people who want us to be purists. Those are the people who are advocating. Those are the people who are writing. And by the way, that's the way we consume media now. We don't go for information. We go for affirmation. It's a long way from Huntley and Brinkley, folks. We are a long way from Walter Cronkite. We are now in the land of Ed Schultz and, and Sean Hannity, which is a long way from straight down the middle factual news. So I really think that to all those people who are drawn to an outsider candidate, um, you need to be more patient with folks who are willing to compromise and less patient with folks who say it has to be pure and all my way. Um, sort of two sides of a topic here. Um, again, early on in the book, um, you talk about being a prosecutor in Jackson County um, and victims' rights and uh, uh, some of the work you did there on victims' rights. A um, couple things. One, what did that teach you? You talk about witnessing some, I can imagine, some particularly horrible things um, involving children, for example. How did that affect the way you think about things like victims' rights? And then um, adding on to that, um, this question from the audience, is there any possibility that someone in Washington would read the first part of the Second Amendment and have the courage to do something about gun control? Just, just taking that all together and thinking about, <laughs> thinking about that topic. Well, the, 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 uh, pardon the um, bad pun, but that's a loaded question. Um, you know, uh, I have seen firsthand the horrific violence that occurs in our country because of our love affair with guns. And I can tell you lots of stories about people who thought they were prepared to defend themselves, but because they were being confronted by someone who didn't respect human life, they ended up dead. Um, this notion that if we're all armed, that we're somehow going to be safer, it doesn't work that way in the real world. It just doesn't. Um, I had an FBI agent when I was in Kansas City that got robbed in a parking garage with a stick wrapped in a Taco Bell bag. And he stuck it in his, 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 his ribs and said, me your wallet. And of course, the FBI agent, highly trained and had a weapon, immediately turned to draw down on the would-be robber. And guess who ended up shot? It wasn't the guy with the Taco Bell bag. It was the FBI agent. And that's just one example I can give you of many where it, guns don't make us safer. The reality is the gun folks in this country are in charge politically. They're in charge politically. Um, I've had the NRA try to beat me every time I've run. They spend a lot of money. I have survived. But I've also had to continue to reinforce that I have no problem with the hunting culture in my state. Because my dad was a big hunter. I grew up around him hunting. And that has kind of helped take that edge off when the NRA comes after me. Because most people in my state, I mean, it's, it's um, uh, believe that the Second Amendment is the ability of anybody to own a gun of any kind anywhere. So I, I don't know how. Now, most Americans want us to have more gun regulation around gun purchases, um, better background checks, gun show loophole. And I think that the Democratic nominee will campaign on that. And I think the Dem Democratic nominee will get votes on that. So I do think we have a chance of actually doing some reform. We came within two votes, within two votes in the Senate of passing reform around this issue. We lost by two. Now, since that time, the Republicans have more people in the Senate because they won last time. 
But I think we've got a good chance of taking the Senate next year, and I think we'll be back to within a really close margin of doing something on background checks. Great. Um, as a senator, you've, um, you've certainly made a name for yourself going after waste, and you talk about that um, uh, a bit in the book. Um, the Arlington National Cemetery scandal is particularly one of those, you know, I read that passage and thought, you know, if you saw it in a movie, you wouldn't. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, wouldn't believe, believe it. Um, and and you, you even mentioned in, in part of that, uh, one of the paragraphs, you say sort of every document I would look at had me saying, you know, you've got to be kidding me. Um, what are the things that are going on in Washington now that, you know, we don't hear about, that if we knew about them, we would think, we would think ourselves, you've got to be kidding me. I got a good one. Are you ready for this? <laughs> they have the hack at OPM where all of the federal government employees' records were accessed. So they are in a panic mode, and government is bad at contracting, particularly in a panic mode, which means any time in war or in a moment where they've got to do, they think they have to do something quickly, and it gives them an excuse to not follow all the rules of contracting. And so they did a no-bid contract. Now hold on to your hat as to who they contracted with. They, there's a contractor who I caught that was providing security for our embassy in Kabul. And I don't know if you remember this news story with all the drunken guards that were out in the back around the bonfire, all painted up, and there was all this sexually suggestive stuff. They were, and they were supposed to be guarding the embassy, and they were all drunk and in paints. And, I mean, it looked like a fraternity party. Um, that company changed its name and right now is under investigation for $135 million in improper payments they received, and they got the no-bid contract to fix the hack at OPM. <laughs> can't make it up. You can't make it up. I, I called them, and I said, are you kidding me? This is the company you give a multi-year contract to that has this history of underperforming, non-performing, bad-performing, and is under investigation right now? Um, but that's just one. I could sit here. I could, you know, you, and that's what I was saying Dick, to Dick was we were talking about this before we came in here. What's frustrating to me about the new pressure that journalism is under in terms of having a business model that works is that we've all gotten so used to um, quick consumption, the clicks and the eyeballs, and we move around quickly. And we're, you know, I mean, I have a member of my family that only gets news through Twitter feed the only place that she reads all the news. Um, so nobody is out there pulling the thread and doing the story of substance that would get Americans riled up. Um, you know, it's easier just to talk about Donald Trump or to talk about the emails or to talk about Kim Kardashian or to talk about Caitlyn or to talk about something that gets people's interest quickly. And the sad thing is that there's so many things that the journalists could be doing that would help make our government better because it's just as sensational, some of this stuff. I mean, if you want to make somebody mad or you want to make somebody afraid, which is what drives traffic, a lot of these stories will do that if they would just take the time to dig in and find them. But journalists now are not given that time to do that. And it's a real problem going forward in terms of the accountability of our government. And so given that, how... You know, how intractable is the waste and abuse? You tell that story you just told, and it makes one think, well, I mean, that's it's borderline ridiculous. Is it, is, it, is it fixable? Well, some of it is. We've done some real good work. I won't say that we're there yet, but um, 
we went in and just guns ablaze and went after the contracting issues in Iraq. And um, we now have special inspector generals that are required in contingencies because of the work we did. Jim Webb, um, who is no longer a senator, but who is a good buddy of mine, he and I worked together on the War Contracting Commission. It came out with a bunch of recommendations. And then the commission went away like they should. And we, we in fact, enacted most of those recommendations in the law. So now there must be a special inspector general for every contingency looking over the shoulder of the military and how they contract. Uh, and this is one of my favorite stories. You want to know if I ever feel like I'm getting anything done? Do you ever want to know why do you keep doing this and why do you still get impassioned and feel great about my work? There was a man that worked in the Capitol that took a civil assignment over in Afghanistan. And he went over and spent 18 months helping with some issues over there that was his expertise. I think it was agriculture. And he came back and he called my staff and he says, I got to tell you this story because the senator will get a big kick out of it. He said, I was sitting in a, a room in a building outside of Kabul and they were discussing they needed to buy this stuff. And somebody in the room said, well, I think we can get away with doing it on a no-bid contract. And the, the commander in the room said, no, if we do that, McCaskill will be all over it. So I'm going, yes, all the way in Afghanistan, victory. Victory. Well, yeah, well done. Um, there are a number of questions uh, with a similar theme here. And uh, so I'll just I'll sort of combine them all. Um, Senator McCaskill, have you ever and would you ever consider a run for the presidency? Rachel Maddow has called you the Democrats' best alternative uh, to Hillary Clinton. So irrespective of whether it's this time or next time or what have you, what are your thoughts on that? I front? just don't think I'm that crazy. <laughs> it's really, I mean, one of the blessings of being close to a presidential campaign, which I had the incredible opportunity to be in 2008. And I look forward to hopefully being in that kind of role in 2016 for Hillary Clinton. But um, is you get to see what it's like up close, the process of running. And I'm close enough friends with the president that I have a chance to visit with him privately from time to time and get a sense of what it really feels like when you're there and how it works. And I just don't think I'm well suited for it. I don't think I would have the patience. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier episode of the Michelle Miao Show. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. 
and that's just kind of the attitude and the the, uh, the ethics of Oasis. Is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know. You know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true. You know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. I think I would lose it. You know, I think I just want to kill somebody. Um, it, it, I just, I, and, and um, so I'm, I'm really happy where I am. I got a lot of work to do in the Senate. We got a lot more women to elect to the Senate. I've got to stick around there for a while. I want to go back to talking about the media for a minute. We just had that conversation about... Um, sort of buzzfeedification of, uh, of the media today. But also in the book, you talk about the fact that um, the media in some cases um, reinforces stereotypes about uh, women in politics and so forth. Um, for example, uh, you mention and refer to the Associated Press uh, focusing on Wendy Davis's pink tennis shoes uh, during her filibuster in the Texas Capitol and when would, uh, you know, what is the likelihood that they would have talked about uh, what kind of shoes that a man was wearing. Um, how much does that media narrative or does that sort of bias, um, intentional or unintentional in the media, play into some of the um, issues that women have in politics or, or in professional, uh, professional roles in general? Most of it's just irritating. <laughs> you know, when we have our dinners, we just, you know, kind of complain about it and kvetch about it. But um, some of it is insidious. And I'll tell you the one example that... I relate to personally because of the pain it has caused me, and that is the double standard when it comes to spouses of candidates. Mm. Um, you know, both John Kerry and John McCain had spouses that had very complicated financial wealth. They had lots of money and lots of tentacles and I'm sure lots of trusts and lots of business interests, lots of investments, and I don't ever recall them being trashed or drugged through the mud about various business decisions they might have made or what, how they were avoiding taxes and how they were using the tax code. But you find a woman, I mean, if you're a woman senator and you're not married to a librarian, buckle up, <laughs> buckle up, because it's coming. Um, it's coming. They go at, they've gone after both my first husband when um, I was married to him. And, I mean, they've just been relentless with my second husband. 
Um, it has been terribly, I mean, I'm fine because I'm tough and I'm used to it, but this was new to him. And he was shocked. You know, he was shocked what they were doing to him. I mean, here's a guy who his first job out of school was in a steel mill. He self-made, created thousands of jobs, great wealth. I mean, he's a freaking poster for the Republican Party, right? He's what they love to talk about. But because he's married to me, he's a tax-cheating SOB. And these ads they did, they were all about, you know, his failure to take care of people in his facilities or his his tax stuff that he did. And it was just awful and terribly unfair. So that's some place where there's an incredible double standard. I know Diane has had some of those issues in her career also um, with Dick. Um, so I tease Amy Klobuchar that the most strategic thing she ever did was marry a professor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just sticking with this topic a bit, I mean, it's a, it's a central theme of the, of the book, Redefining Ladylike. Um, there was a 2010 study that you referenced in the book uh, mentioning that calling female candidates sexist names actually significantly reduces their political standing in people's minds. Um, Senator Murkowski's opponent refers to her in a recent elect, not a long time ago, recently, as a member of the world's oldest profession. Senator Landro is referred to as a high-class prostitute uh, on a, a television program. Um, talk about what needs to happen. How, how do we get past that? This has obviously been an ongoing problem for some time. Um, you mentioned it's getting a little bit better. What needs to happen, and how do women need to think about that when they're pursuing careers like this? Well, I will say that it is it continues to be a problem, but the good news is but there is now almost a visceral reaction in the electorate when it goes too far. I mean, I think you might remember that that happened with legitimate rape. Legitimate rape, yeah. Um, where a man equated your ability to get pregnant with whether or not uh, intercourse was consensual, or as I called it in the book, the chapter called the magic uterus. Um, so uh, it, 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 you know, when that happened, I mean, in, at some point in time, th th that really motivated women. I mean, our campaign just lit up at that moment. At that moment, women from all over the country, all over the world, were wanting to help. And I think these guys are very perilously close. Uh, when I saw Marco Rubio say in the debate that he did not favor a rape and incest exception to abortion restrictions, I went, "What?" I mean, that's like. There's never been a candidate, a Republican candidate for president in the history of our country that didn't support a rape and incest exception, ever. So I think there is this line that you can do this stuff, but if you go too far, you create the kind of energy that carries campaigns across the finish line. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, a couple um, foreign policy questions. In the audience, you Let can probably guess. guess what one of them is. Let me guess. I'll start with the other one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> As the U.S. opens relations with Cuba, how do you think our government should address their human rights issues um, with regard to the Cuban people? I think we have to do the same thing with Cuba that we do with many other countries that we have relations with. I mean, obviously, we do. Um, we have relations with many countries that have practices that we find abhorrent. Um, but not having relations with them is more damaging to the Cuban people. Because what Castro has done, and I didn't realize this fully until I went down there, Castro, the Castro family has used 
our unwillingness to recognize them as their excuse for the Cuban people. It's the imperialist embargo that is making us not prosperous. And by the way, you understand that every other country in the world recognizes Cuba. We're it. I mean, Canada, Great Britain, France, Germany, all of our friends, we're it. And so it really has just been a fig leaf for the Castros. So the sooner we remove that fig leaf and the sooner that all the Cuban people realize that that's just been his excuse all this time, I think the better off that uh, the Cuban people will be because it will give them, and you see the green shoots of entrepreneurship down there. And by the way, they love us, the Cuban people. They are so excited. This is a huge deal to the Cuban people. And I think that they're going to have more ability to stand up to the human rights abuses with this excuse removed from the Castro weapon war. Okay, and then the second one, um, coming from uh, um, someone from from Missouri. I'm from Festus. My granddaughter goes to Wash U, as did my whole family. And the question is, as you can as you can guess, about Iran. Um, what are your thoughts? And- well, first, it's a remarkable thing that somebody from Festus ended up in San Francisco. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. Um, if you understood where Festus was, you would understand Festus is in Jefferson County, and it's um, kind of a conservative place. Um, uh, here's where I am on the Iran deal. I have um, tried to spend the last couple of weeks, I was really irritated the Republicans wanted 60 days to look at this deal, and it appeared to me they all made up their mind in five minutes. I thought it was pretty important. I'm not, I'm not voting for or against this deal. I'm voting either for this deal or for a new status quo. So my decision is which is better for Israel and for our national security, the deal or the new status quo. So I spent my time trying to figure out what the new status quo is. Will we be able to hold on to all the sanctions? Will the sanctions regime remain as robust as it has over the last several years, which has isolated Iran and brought them to the table? Because if we can't isolate them and keep them at the table, we, we couldn't get a better deal. If China starts doing business with them, if Russia starts doing business with them, and by the way, we don't even have their money. The base says we're going to give them $60 billion. Well, I wanted to figure out, are they going to get the $60 billion anyway? Because the countries that hold their money are South Korea, Japan, China, India, and Turkey. So I've spent my time talking to those five countries, trying to get a straight answer, which, by the way, if you haven't tried to get a straight answer out of the ambassador from China, you really haven't lived. <laughs> I mean, this yeah. is somebody who is schooled in how to never give a straight answer. When I, was, when, I was, uh, when, I was, when I was over there, I would always get, we have an old saying in China, and that, would be, and that was with a Chinese person from Shanghai who would look at me and go, not an old thing. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, I'm trying to figure out, will they get this money anyway if we don't do the deal? Will they end up without cement down their centrifuges with billions of dollars that they can funnel to Hezbollah and other groups? So um, I'm almost finished with that process. I should make an announcement with today or tomorrow, and I would give you a preview, but he'd kill me. <laughs> like that guy from my office that doesn't want me to, he wants me to put it out when I put it out. But I, I am, I am, I will just tell you, I think you can probably tell from my conversation with you now that um, I am very worried that the new status quo would isolate Israel much more than it is now, which is dangerous for the Israelis. And it would certainly isolate America in terms of its ability to be the stimulus for diplomatic answers to difficult world problems. 
We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier episode of The Michelle Miao Show. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show. We've said there need to be major changes in policing uh, uh, around the country. Um, talk, talk about that, and, and particularly in the context of something that was obviously right there. And uh, Yeah, and it's really hard for me because I spent so many years working closely with the police, and I know how good so many of them are and how badly they want to serve their communities respectfully and deferentially to the people that um, they, they are trying to protect. Um, and then we had um, pattern and practices investigation, which showed that there was a systemic uh, mistreatment of African-Americans in this community. And I'm sure it's true in many, many communities around the country. And there's two or three things that are going on here. I saw a real change when we started implementing community policing in the 90s. When we started having police that were, that were assigned to neighborhoods. So the police got to know the people in that neighborhood, and the neighborhood got to know the police. And there was a connection, and there was a building up of trust. And the police knew who the troublemakers were. And by the way, because the community trusted them, they would tell them who the troublemakers were and help them hold those troublemakers accountable. And it was this wonderful synergy. In fact, I got to the point that I was assigning prosecutors based on communities. So not only would there be a policeman assigned to your community, when the case was prosecuted, you knew the prosecutor. So victims were much more likely to trust that the case wasn't going to get screwed up or they weren't going to be hung out to dry. But with the shrinking of domestic budgets, with the shrinking of 
federal money for various municipal things, um, budgets have gotten more and more stressed, and you see less and less money that can do anything other than responding to 911 calls. And when you're just responding to 911 calls all the time, if you're a police officer, you can lose sight of the community. Because you are out there time after time, and all you're encountering is the worst. You don't ever encounter the best. And so it's understandable that you can begin to switch your viewpoint that, you know, black people are the problem. So we've got to get back to a community policing model, and we've got to do criminal justice reform. 95% of the people in federal penitentiary are nonviolent, and we're spending $7 billion a year to keep them there. That's just dumb. It's just dumb. Um, there's... <laughs> There are all kinds of ways. I started uh, along with somebody from this area, uh, one of the first drug courts in the country. Drug courts work. They make, I call them taxpayer factories. They make people who are addicted to drugs get a job, get an education, pay taxes, rejoin their families. They quit stealing. They quit getting welfare. And when it's over, you dismiss the charge against them so they don't have a felony hanging around their neck for the rest of their lives. We can do those kinds of courts. I'm not saying let them go. I'm not saying don't hold them accountable. Do it in a way that makes more sense for all of us instead of giving them expensive bed space, especially we got a bunch of people in the federal prison that are over 60. You know what the chances are somebody over 60 commits a crime? I mean, the recidivism for people over 60 is like almost zero. So we can figure out ways to do this. And the good news is a bunch of Republicans are interested. Uh, the libertarian movement has helped in that regard. You've got people like Ron Johnson and, and Rand Paul and other Republicans that are all in trying to look at how we can do some massive criminal justice reform that I think will help. Okay. We've got um, we've only four minutes left, but I've got one question, and then we'll close on a, a softball, so you can take your time with this one. Um, these are both from the audience. Now, the first is, what are the two or three very best ways for people to keep up to speed with what's happening in Congress? It's a good question. You see, as you mentioned in the media, you get this sort of um, Sean Hannity version of what's going on today in Congress. Where, pe where can people go to really understand um, the, the debate? Uh, well, I mean, I'm a big fan of The Economist. Um, I think that you get in-depth looks at a lot of issues that are being struggled. I mean, the article may be written about something that we're not particularly legislating on, but eventually it all comes around, right? Um, I, I certainly would never tell someone just to go to one source. I mean, I try to do Wall Street Journal every day. I try to do New York Times every day. I obviously skim the Missouri papers every day. Um, I, you know, do National Journal some. I, um, you know, and of course I'm lucky because I have staff that are feeding me articles all the time that are substantive. But, I mean, just resist the temptation to surf on the surface and to skim the top. Uh, take the time when you hear something like, you know, well, I mean, and there's lots of issues like this. I mean, where you, if you just skim at the top, you never really understand that it's much more complicated than that. It's not the way it's being presented. There is another side to the story. And by the way, sure. almost always there's another side to the story. Um. And are there sources beyond The Economist that you particularly think are interesting and usually get it right? And I know that... Um, Christian Science Monitor usually gets it right. Right. That's another good one. Both of them, I think, are very straightforward. John, what would you say? My communications director is here. In your opinion, who, th who do you think gets it right? 
New York Times. Yeah, they have real. They still have a bunch of real reporters at the New York Times. Yeah. I mean, a bunch. Yeah, they were, and they're all over the place. Right. So, um, they, they, you know, like some of them drive me crazy. That's probably why I didn't mention them over and over again because <laughs> I get cranky with them sometimes. But. All right, uh, last one's a softball for you. As a native Missourian and Mizzou journalism grad, I'd like to talk to you about uh, Todd Aiken. Is it true that you bet your daughter you would shotgun a beer? Yeah, really briefly, and this is a good thing, this is a good thing to close with. Um, uh, Mike Muir is here, who is part of my team and who is an incredibly talented person that does all my mail in my campaigns, and he's from San Francisco, and my dear friend, and I'm, I want to give him a lot of credit for this. We decided that Todd Aiken was the best candidate for us to have in the election because he said a lot of things that were crazy, um, and we knew that we could show him to be so extreme. The others were extreme, too. But he had so many things he'd said publicly that were going to be easier to beat him. So we polled in the Republican primary and figured out what was most popular about what Todd had said. And then we, I paid for the ad. It said, paid for by Claire McCaskill. I approved this message. And I, the ad said, Todd Aiken is too conservative for Missouri. And it listed all the things that the Republican primary voters loved about him. And, of course, my phone started ringing. Well, if you think he's too conservative, he's perfect. And we're going, yes, he is. So, <laughs> so um, I think Mike actually named the ad. We called it a cup of tea because he was a Tea Party guy. And, and it was, uh, he was just the, what the far right wanted. And it, it worked. And, and it worked. So, but it was high risk. I spent more money on that ad than Todd Aiken had spent his entire campaign. It was an unconventional, bold, high-risk deal, and I was very nervous about it. I was so lucky because my two daughters, one took a leave from her job and the other was home from school. They traveled with me that summer on the campaign. They saw how nervous I was. They realized I was really buggy about this. This could be a disaster if this went wrong. And Maddie said, Mom, if Todd Aiken wins the primary, will you shotgun a beer with us? I had no idea what it was. <laughs> so for those of you, how many of you know what shotgunning a beer is? Okay. For those of you who don't know, here's what it is. You take a beer and you put a hole in the bottom of the can and you put that over your mouth and you pop the, the tab and the beer rushes into your mouth. So you've learned something at the Commonwealth Club you didn't think you were going to learn today. So... Um, uh, we, he won the primary that night, and then, of course, he went on to exceed our expectations when he said legitimate rape a few weeks later. But um, So that excerpt from the book got put in Huffington Post a few weeks ago, and the uh, Washington journalists were giving me trouble about it and said, we don't believe it. So I actually tweeted the pictures play-by-play, uh, play, them showing me how to do it, me doing this, and then me hugging my daughters after the fact. So if you want to see live-action shots, you can go to my Twitter feed to see me shotgunning the beer to celebrate the fact that Todd Aiken was my opponent and uh, turned out our strategy, while bold and unconventional, was very effective because um, I won the race by a larger margin than anybody in statewide office has won in Missouri in a long, long time. So, Senator, thanks for being here. Thanks, Dick. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
Thanks for listening. You can catch The Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network.